Thank you so much. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. These are the verses and these are the thoughts that we are going to be examining this morning as we make our way to the 27th and 28th chapters of the book of Matthew. And I'm going to, for our reading, look in particular at verse 1 down to verse 10 of the 28th chapter because here you find the very heart of this resurrection story. Now, in this first verse of the 28th chapter of Matthew's account, you and I are told that now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, you're going to want to be tracking with me the number of times that these two ladies appear in this story. They are continuous eyewitness accounts of the various dynamics that are unfolding here. Verse 2. And behold, there was an earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. My key verse now. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee on their they will see me. What I'd love to do with you is to examine this carefully, be able to see the scriptural prophecies fulfilled, be able to examine with you the material evidence that is being presented, to look very carefully at the relational accounts, the eyewitness accounts that are here, Ponder with me the transformation of the disciples' lives where they were so fearful when they were in that upper room initially. But then, as a result of realities of resurrection, there is such a transformation of the emotional state of the followers of Jesus Christ that they hit the streets of Jerusalem running and now filled with courage and boldness. They are proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was raised on that third day. 
such an utter transformation that takes place, you and I have got to take the sum total of the evidential matters at hand and process the significance of the truths found in God's word as we now look to our Lord, you see, in prayer. And our Father, we're thanking you and praising you for being our God. And we're thanking you and praising you for this unfolding drama of redemption that we're exploring over these days with the essence, the pinnacle of it all being the raised one, Jesus Christ. Thanking you, Father, that we can be celebratory, that we have that inner sense of security and assurance, that the complexities of life find their resounding answer in the risen Savior. And it's He the risen one that we want to be able to examine, focus upon, and make absolutely certain that personal faith has been rooted in him and him alone. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here, Father, to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. His name was Christopher Redd. He and his son had started work on what's known as the New Cathedral of St. Paul's. Fascinating. He and his chief mason had decided where the central point of the crossing should be over which the dome would be, was to rise. So you know what they did? They sent out one of their workmen to go find a stone. A stone from the rubble of the old cathedral. Simply marked the spot. So the workmen just went out there and randomly picked up a fragment of stone, brought it to them, and they looked at it. They looked at each other. They looked down and stared at it, and then they looked again at each other. It had one word carved on it in Latin, resurgam, which means in English, I shall rise again. Coincidental? Ironic? There is a visual symbolism of life's complexities in the construction of that, of that cathedral, you see. Because life seems so fragmented globally. And yet here's a workman who randomly, so to speak, takes a particular stone that does not distinguish itself brings it to the ones who are architecturally designing this masterpiece, and they look at it, and lo and behold, they are impressed with the very words that reference Jesus Christ, I shall rise again, and everything comes together, and all that seems fragmented is unified. Which speaks to your heart and mine as well. If you look at your life this morning and it seems so incredibly fragmented. And there's a living stone that's putting the pieces of your life together.
We're now looking at this unfolding drama of redemption. Thursday night, we positioned ourselves in that upper room. Good Friday is meant to position ourselves at that cross. But now we're going to be joining these ladies and positioning ourselves on this third day experience at the tomb. And these ladies are prominent. Because you and I find, if we are tracking in chapter 27, verse 65, rather 55 and 56, there at the, the crucifixion were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, and among whom were, mark this, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. They will be the common thread through these verses. And as we're looking at this common thread and the fragmentation of society mirrored in that St. Paul story and how the living stone fits it all together, I want to draw out for you now four significant movements in this story that kind of pulls all together for you and for me, the centerpiece of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's check it out. First, notice with me that as we commemorate Christ's resurrection, we've got to note the certainty of Christ's death. In verse 57 of the 27th chapter now, you and I are told it's evening. It's evening. And there came a rich man from Arimathea. His name is Joseph. Also was a disciple of Jesus, but no ordinary man. Mark's account tells us that he was a prominent member of the council that had put Jesus to death. Furthermore, Mark would inform us that he was one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of John would tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. The physician Luke would tell us that he was a good and righteous man. What we are about to see now is high risk. Because while there was tremendous religious opposition to Jesus Christ, his teachings, his claims, his miracles, now here we find this one who had been a secretive disciple of Jesus Christ, a member of the very board that had determined to put Jesus to death, positioning himself before the cross and wanting now to remove those nails and to bring that body down and place him in a tomb. High risk. High risk for Jesus. So what does he do in verse 58? He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate's got to make absolutely certain that this body is, in fact, dead. In John, the 19th chapter, we're told that when the, when the soldiers approached Jesus, we're told he was already dead, and they did not break his legs in keeping, of course, with the promises of the Old Testament. 
one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately there came out blood and water. In his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel gives us this opening statement that let the conversation cease, the plaque read. Let laughter flee. This is the place where death delights to help the living. The plaque of a forensic pathologist that Lee Strobel had gone to interview. And in that interview, he posed questions to a leading physician. Is there any possible way, any possible way that Jesus could have survived this? Dr. Metherell shook his head, pointed his finger at me for emphasis. Absolutely not, he said. Remember that he was already in hypovolemic shock from the massive blood loss even before the crucifixion started. He couldn't possibly have faked his death because you can't fake the inability to breathe for long. Besides, the spear thrust into his heart would have settled the issue once and for all. And the Romans were not about to risk their own death by allowing him to walk away alive. And my mind goes back to an article that I'm sure some of our physicians have tucked away somewhere. The 1986 article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, an article pertaining to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which concludes clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with medical knowledge. Now, the soldiers had vested interest in making absolutely certain, because their lives would depend upon it, that Jesus was dead. Due to the growing political climate, the tensions involved, now is also in Pilate's vested interest to make absolutely certain that Jesus Christ is dead. He has a centurion brought in to discuss the matter with him, as the gospel account informs us. And Mark informs us that this centurion ascertains the fact that Jesus was dead, the very one who had said that this was an innocent man. So Pilate orders now the body to be given. Given to Joseph of Arimathea. But there's a subtlety in this. Because eight centuries prior in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53 verse 9. Eight centuries prior to this event. God has already sovereignly ordained that his Messiah would be buried in the tomb of a rich person. Here you now have messianic prophetic evidence unfolding in front of your very eyes historically. Joseph might not be thinking about this at this point as he simply takes this body, wraps it in a clean shroud, 
But in verse 68, something captures your attention and my attention as well, doesn't it? Circle that word new. And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. For you see, historically, in the time period in which Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry is described, when a prince, when a king, when an emperor was about to make his way towards a city or a town, in honor of that political leader, a road, a new road would be made so that he would be the first to travel that road. The emphasis is newness. When Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem, he was placed upon a colt, the full of a donkey. This animal was one that had never previously had been ridden. The emphasis when it comes to royalty is to give honor via newness. God is sovereignly, even in this little detail now, given evidence of royalty. As this one, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9, is being placed in this new, not old, setting. Wrapped in a clean linen shroud in this new tomb he had cut in the rock, rolled a great stone in the entrance of the tomb, you see, and then went away. Dr. Richard Langenecker, who once taught at Trinity Divinity School, wrote in Christianity Today years ago of two particular experiences he had of walking through graveyards that have stood out in his mind. The first, he says, is from a churchyard in Zurich, Switzerland. A 34-year-old lady with only one word on her headstone. Varum. Why? The question of humanity. Four graves beyond this lady, with the date of death being given as eight months later, it's the grave of a 74-year-old man with the following answer on its headstone. Mit Gott is kind of a room. With God, there is no questioning why. The other grave site that captured the great professor's experience is in Israel as he was going through various catacombs. In one of the chambers, he says, is a revealing two-part Greek inscription. On the left side, it reads, On behalf of all the Jewish scholars, be comforted, holy fathers, for no one is immortal. On the other side, is this, quote, good luck in your resurrection, unquote. Now, people are grappling with the great Varum, German word, why? But what we see here now is that God has sovereignly positioned this to occur and lo and behold, what you have now done is you have drawn a line down from verse 56, haven't you? 
all the way down now, if you'll notice this, to verse 61. Where in verse 56, you had Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, there as eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. But now in verse 61, you've got Mary Magdalene and the other Mary as witnesses of the burial. You see, Christianity is very evidential and allows for people, secularists, religious, unbelievers, to examine the evidence and see for themselves nothing hidden. And so here now are eyewitnesses on the scene. And God has sovereignly placed these ladies, which goes contrary to the writings of that time period where normally, if this were simply some kind of fantasy, fictional account, they would have placed men. But God has challenged the culture, positioned women there, and now you and I have an odd opportunity to be able to examine the evidence at hand as we commemorate Christ's resurrection, I want you to notice, first of all, with me, the certainty of Christ's death. And now begin to ask, and why did he die? And then there is that tremendous statement from the cross, tetelestai in the Greek, it is finished, which was utilized in the time period of the Roman system so that when a prisoner had now paid the penalty for his or her crime, the jail door would open up and there would be freedom. And now what God had done through the second member of the Trinity is basically opened up your freedom through the tetelestai on that cross, and now you have been set free from the penalty of sin, you've been set free from the power of sin, and now you see the certainty of the death of Jesus Christ there on your half and my behalf as he, the great substitute, had took your place and my place on that cross. But now, what we have to understand is that the resurrection assures what Christ's death secures. Let me say it again. The resurrection of Christ assures what the death of Christ secures. Your eternal life, if you've put faith and trust in Jesus. Which leads you and leads me now to the second movement in this redemptive drama. The number two, as we commemorate Christ's resurrection, then note with me also the securing of Christ's tomb, starting in verse 62. Look for that word secure, how often it appears. Now, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now, Pilate's got to be getting a little tired of these folk by this point because they have been continuously pushing him and pressing him to make a decision based on their terms, even though he had, in essence, found Jesus to be an innocent man. Ironic. In verse 63, they say, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will arise. They are weighed down by his words, even now. Even the unbelievers weighed down by the words, I will rise. It is still creating such angst within their souls. Where are the believers at this point? Are they processing that statement? The unbelievers are. Got 
got to do something. Therefore, in verse 64, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. There's that word. Until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away until the people he has risen from the dead, and the lost fraud will be worse than the first. Now, I find it ironic, don't you, that they're ordering Pilate to order? I mean, who is in charge here anyways? Now, you're asking as you examine that 64th verse, what do they mean by the last fraud will be worse, you see, than the first? The last fraud, in their estimation, is the claim of resurrection. The first fraud, in their estimation, is the claim of being Messiah. What's Pilate going to do at this point? Well, he turns, and there's an exclamation point attached to this, because you can sense his frustration. He says to them, you have a God, the Jewish God of soldiers. Go make it as secure, key word again, as you can. Now, understand that God has sovereignly now positioned the Jewish God who are under the auspices of the Sanhedrin that has sentenced Jesus Christ to death, they have vested interest in making certain that that tomb, in fact, is secure. No loose stone here, you see. They will go out of their way to make absolutely certain that this is being achieved. And so you and I are told they went and made the stone secure by sealing the stone, setting a God. Notice the phrase sealing the stone and the phrase setting the God. The seal consisted of a cord or string. It would be positioned across the stone at its widest point, fastened at either end by sealed clay. Ironically, the insignia of the emperor would be pressed into that clay, even though these are the Jewish authorities that are arguing for this very fact. You feel the tensions here. They're even using the Roman government to get their way. And if one slightly moved the stone and the seal were to be broken, the violator would be subject to the wrath of Roman law. The stone, to weigh as much as a ton, large, circular in shape, set up on edge, positioned in an inclined groove just in front of the tomb's entrance, and after the body's placed in the grave cave for burial, stones released from the high end of the groove, by the removal of a wedge or stone, and once free to move, gravity pulls it into place. And now they've got vested interest, and they think they have secured it. But who has the real security in all of this? Again, from Christianity Today, from years ago. Eileen Lagia of the Missionary Church headquarters in Fort Wayne, Indiana, writes, Once there was a spider who lived in a tree. The webs he wove were the strongest, the glossiest, the stickiest webs that a spider could ever construct. Many bugs and beetles, many ants and other insects found themselves caught, quick-dried, stored away in his loaded larder. One thing alone troubled his tranquil existence, where close to his tree ran a railroad track. And each morning, when the train whooshed by, his whole house shuddered and shook. 
Sometimes he even lost a few of the tasty tidbits he had intended for a treat. That's the last straw, he screamed one day when he found part of his house thrown away. I'll put a stop to that train. It won't trouble me anymore. I'm going to make this secure. That night, he spun a long, glossy filament that rolled out and out and out. When the wind gave a strong puff, stronger than usual, he leaped into the air, went flying across the tracks to the tree on the other side, and now his evil plan began. Back and forth, back and forth, from tree to tree he ran, weaving the strongest, the glossiest, the stickiest web any spider could construct. None had ever been so fine, none so strong, none so tough, so utterly unbreakable. I'll seal it with a seal, he muttered. I'll get some of my friends to guard it as well. They'll make it as sure as they can. And the next morning, the whoo of the train could be heard. It was the Logos Express and was coming awfully fast. Bring it on, laughed the spider. What a wreck this will be. Woo called the train. Ha, laughed the spider. Woo, the train warned. Whoosh. As sure as you can said Pilate. Well put. Because you've got to ask yourself, and who truly secures the story of that tomb? Who is really in charge of this unfolding drama? And where does all of this lead us? To the third movement where in verse 1 down to verse 10 of the 28th chapter, as we commemorate Christ's resurrection, notice this third movement, the response of Christ's followers, and now it's after the Sabbath. Toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Now, you've bumped into these ladies, haven't you, in this story? They were there at the crucifixion, verse 56, 27th chapter, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. They were there at the burial, verse 61, 27th chapter. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. They're not going to be confused at this point as to which tomb. So much for that confused tomb argument. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, they've already been eyewitnesses of the burial as well as crucifixion. Here they are for the third time in this story. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. You see, God specializes in producing evidence. Here's what comes next. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Pause. Where have you bumped into an earthquake in these verses prior? In chapter 27, verse 51, as Christ hung on that cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to 
bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, Greek word seismic. This is where we get seismatology. Seismic quakes. What fascinates me is that as the earth shook, as the earthquake appeared, creation is making a powerful statement. There is an opening here. The temple veil is torn in two, not bottom up, as if the earthquake produced this, but top down, God produces this grace, not works. But what we find at the crucifixion and the earthquake is making a creational statement, a witness of Christ's finished work, is there is an opening here. They could peer into the Holy of Holies. Do you realize now at the resurrection an earthquake takes place? There is an opening here. And now whether you're examining the evidence of crucifixion or examining the evidence of resurrection, what God is saying, examine the evidence. Isn't this ironic? Have we connected the dots before of the earthquakes in the drama of redemption? And how God is using that as still added opportunity to examine the evidence of the claims of Jesus Christ. There was an earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. Write the word irony against verse 4. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. The gods were supposed to be alive, keeping the one Jesus in that grave is dead. Instead, we've got Jesus alive, and we've got the gods who are supposed to be guarding the, the dead man, functioning like they're dead. You see what Matthew's doing here? As he's weaving your redemptive drama together to process. But he's got words that bring comfort and strength and courage to all people who are what I would call Easter's children. Those that put faith and trust in the risen one. In verse 5, he says to the women, not to the gods, but the ones who position themselves out of loyalty as disciples of Christ at the cross and at the tomb, watching the burial and now processing all the events occurring around that tomb. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, which is what I want to say to you at this point. Whatever it is you're facing, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. And you say, but Gary... 
When did he say that? Where did he say that? Glad you asked. Check out chapter 17, verse 9 of Matthew's account. And as they were coming down the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, Jesus commanded them, tell them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is, keyword, raised from the dead. What about chapter 17, verses 22 and 23? As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. Same Greek word. And they were greatly distressed. And in the 26th chapter, in the 32nd verse, poignant, but after I am raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. This is why one has such courage in the midst of life's great challenges. It's why Bishop Mayer was able to stand up to the Iranian authorities when his life was being threatened because he preached a resurrection message in 1994. He endured frequent persecutions. His church was vandalized by radical Islamic groups. He stood up for other pastors who had the guts to be able to argue for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which in essence then was telling the government that there's a greater authority than they themselves. So he'd become such a thorn in the government's side because he had led people to Christ. Just days after Easter, Bishop Hike disappeared. And we're told that when his family came to identify the body, they saw that he had been stabbed ten times, and no one claimed responsibility, but the Middle East human rights groups are convinced that the Iranian government did away with this troublesome, courageous pastor. Don't you love pastors with guts? Iranian Christians mourned the loss of their pastor. Yet the story of resurrection penetrated the region. And those that had gathered under his teaching were then scattered with this message. In the midst of persecution. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And then, come. This is so Christianity. See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell. You know how it is in school. It's show and tell. This is go and tell. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I've told you. And in chapter 26, verse 32, but after I am raised up, 
I will go before you to Galilee. And you're processing now. And now you're considering the elements attached to resurrection. That the disciples would be willing to die for their claim. They had seen Jesus after his death. They were so timid before. But now, due to resurrection power, they hit the streets of Jerusalem running. And timidity has been transformed into courage. And you consider the evidence as the Apostle Paul, who himself on the road of Damascus had encountered the risen Savior and would then therefore go on to say more than 500 people could attest to the risen Lord. And then you process still this fact as well, that the religious and the governmental institutions had a vested interest in stopping the rapid spread of the Christian faith. All they had to do was to produce the dead body. They couldn't, and they didn't, because he was raised. You see? Now, note the credibility of the witnesses. They're at the crucifixion. They're at the burial. They're at this tomb as the, once again, earthquake phenomena takes place. They departed, in verse 8, quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Very typical of humanity, the conflictedness of emotion. Not merely one or the other. Ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them. And this is the understatement of all of history. Said, greetings. No pep rally here. No large parade. This solitary figure standing out there on this road, and he just simply says, greetings. Talk about understatement. While this entire world lives in overstatement, here you have a Jesus who functions in understatement. And he produces what he promises. We live in a world that promises but doesn't produce. Here you have a sovereign God who both produces and promises, and you see the connection being made here, and the eyewitnesses at hand, and the transformations occurring. And they take hold of his feet and worship him. And Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. He knows what's coming their way in terms of added persecutions. Don't be afraid. Just go and tell my brothers, my brothers, isn't that beautiful? Go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now you've looked at the composite of the various aspects of evidence that is flowing out of these verses. But now you and I are led to this fourth of the movements, where in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the God went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. 
And when they had assembled, these chief priests, with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Now, just as they had to bribe Judas prior to the death, they've now got to bribe these soldiers subsequent to the death. And interestingly, the same Greek word agos is used here, silver. Just as they bought off Judas with silver, now they've got to buy these guys off with silver. And now we move from the betrayal of Christ, the betrayal of humanity, where people are going to have to buy into either the truth or the lie. And now the convergence of the truth versus lie tension appears here when verse 13 they say, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, you don't have to be a lawyer to be able to say, if I was asleep, how would I know it was the disciples? I mean, really, what kind of credibility story am I delivering here anyways? That's not going to stand up in a court. But in the court of public opinion, evidently it did for a period of time because here and I, you and I see the fourth movement, that as we commemorate Christ's resurrection, I want you to note with me the efforts of Christ's opponents. They're going out of their way. If they can't keep him in the grave, they've got to at least pretend so, that he's still dead. But somebody produced the body. Are the disciples willing to become courageous on the basis of a known lie that they hold the body? No, they've been timid all along. They're not going to witness if he's dead. And if the governmental authorities have some kind of conspiracy theory going, all they've got to do is produce the body. But they can't, nobody can, because he is alive, as he said. And in verse 14, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the argos, they took the silver, and did as they were directed. And I've circled the word directed because it is the very same root word in the Greek as from verse 20, where Jesus told his disciples, teaching, same word, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And when you and I are told in verse 15 that on the basis of that teaching, the lie would spread. This story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The opposite is found in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The truth is being spread. And now what you've got in today's world is the conflict, the competition, and the convergence of truth versus false when it comes to the whole matters of just who is this Jesus? What is this all about? The one who said, I." It is finished, as the penalty of sin was paid, and your prison door was opened up, and you're free. You're free if you put your faith and trust in the one who paid your penalty. Does the world seem fragmented? It's due to sin. Does your life seem fragmented? There was a workman. He had it off. Picked up a stone from the rubble of the old cathedral to mark the spot. The workman chose a fragment at random. 
brought it to Ren. One word carved on it. Resurgum from the Latin. I shall rise again. Risen. As he said. And we praise you, Father, for this fact. Because what we find here then is the credibility of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, tested at the most extreme moment. Crucifixion. Burial. A tomb made secure. Yet the one who has highest authority over the matter of what is true security produces a quake that not only could open up a temple and allow people to peer into the Holy of Holies, but likewise, with stone removed, allow for the evidence to be examined, risen, as he said, and the stamp of approval for all time, for all eternity from the Godhead, placed upon the finished work of Jesus, our substitute, is such that we find our strength, we find our courage in the one who is risen. As he said, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.